Welcome to With One Accord, the Houston Chamber Choir podcast. I'm Sinjin Flynn, host of Behind the Music. Today's episode is made possible in part by the generous support of Silvercrest Asset Management Group, providing an unparalleled level of quality investment advice. This time, it's a great privilege to be able to talk to Maria Guinang, who is in Caracas, Venezuela. Maria, welcome. Thank you very much. And I should say that you're here talking to me today on Behind the Music because you have conducted the Houston Chamber Choir on a couple of occasions, haven't you? Yes, I have. And I am extremely proud of that uh, group and of Bob Simpson's work. And I want to congratulate them also on their uh, recent um, recognitions and uh, awards. Um, I think it's a wonderful ensemble. It's a very professional, um, but musically um, um, beautifully formed and with a lot of enthusiasm. So mm. thank you. I'm very happy to be conducting this group again. You first conducted the Chamber Choir, I think, in February of 2014. It was a program that featured music of the Americas. Um, I want to start by asking you, do you see or what are your impressions of the differences between conducting ensembles in your native Venezuela and conducting ensembles elsewhere? Are there, are there differences in the way that ensembles are, are created, how they react, how they perform? Oh, yes. Um, I think, um, first of all, we have to think of the type of our ensemble. Mm -hmm. You know, if we, if we are talking about university ensembles or colleges or high schools or children or professionals, they differ, they differ from each other. Mm -hmm. But also they differ from the USA type of ensembles and the ensembles in Venezuela because we are different cultures. Right. I mean, you come um, from a culture that is more Central European, uh, Europeanly minded. Mm -hmm. Corally speaking, um, your um, uh, examples let's say your um, major um, landmarks are the English school of singing or German or Scandinavian. Right. Um, and we are Latins, so we speak Spanish and our um, models of singing are more the Italian school of um, uh, sacred music, Gregorian chant, but also opera <clears throat> also the spanish school and at to, to a certain point the um, french school so i i would say that there is a there is a major difference in starting on the repertoire we sing mm, right on the way on the repertoire we choose on the way we we decide what to sing but when we come to the formation of the choirs and it has to be also with the culture. I find that um, 
in the universities, for instance, uh, now we have, we created uh, in the early 80s, the first universities uh, department of music in Venezuela. Huh. Mm. They didn't exist before. Music was only taught in the music conservatory. So singers that were singing in choirs and were good singers, they would sing in the music conservatories, but they were not going to university. So most of the university choirs were formed by non-musicians, by good amateurs. Mm -hmm. uh, so choirs were not auditioned, for instance. Right. But uh, I conducted the university choir of the Simon Bolivar University, a scientific technological university for more than 35 years. <clears throat> and people were there, they were so bright, so intelligent. And they learn so fast. And they learn, uh, they, it's not that they learn by row, they, they couldn't really read um, music well, but they would, they develop an ability to learn with the score, the sort of reading the score very fast, and they will learn by heart everything. Ah. So it, it was beautifully to perform with them because it was very flexible and you could change and enthusiastic. So in that respect, I think that in the United States, the fact that you um, have a more solid school of uh, musical language and solfege and um, tra ear training and all that makes uh, the reading of music a sort of obligatory part in the choral life. And um, then, you tend to do more repertoire in a whole year, uh, but perhaps learn um, by heart less. Uh, right. So I, I think it's, there is a balance, you know, in, in this. Uh, and then perhaps you devote, you know, I mean, you try to make from the rehearsal, you know, the most you can, but sometimes I feel that I would like to, to have a little bit more of rehearsal just to finish <laughs> polishing everything. So, of course, here I work with my own choirs. So I am the one who sets the pace. <laughs> when I am in the States, I am uninvited. I am a guest, so I'm giving. But usually when I am in the States, no matter if it's a children's choir, um, um, junior high choir, um, honor choir, college, university, or professional choir, I have always had beautifully uh, prepared groups before mm -hmm. I come. So um, hardly ever I talk from, the, from scratch a repertoire in the States. So that's a great advantage. I am a privileged uh, invited guest when I go there. How did you come to music? Were you, were you born into a musical family? I can say yes. Um, my my mother's family were really um, very musical. My uh, great grandfather was um, Manuel Guadalajara. This man. He oh, really? Wrote, he wrote uh, valses. He was a um, that is his picture. Oh wow! Yeah, he huh. was a. Um, uh, from um, Spanish origin. He was a flutist 
who lived mm -hmm. in Caracas in the, the late 19th century. And he was very highly regarded as a musician, a performer and composer. And his wife, Mercedes Garcia, was a very good pianist. Um, and um, in that time, you know, it, it, it was not common that a woman would um, be so active um, um, professionally as mm -hmm. a pianist, but she, um, he died when she was young and she was a widow and she had to raise her children by playing the piano. So my grandmother was raised as a, a pianist also by her mother and my mother also studied piano. So I had the opportunity and all my siblings, somehow we studied an instrument and we were given the opportunity to go to the music school. Uh, out of all of them, I am the one who stayed in music professionally. You went to do your undergraduate degree in music at the University of Bristol in Great Britain. What was that like for you to go all that way to a, a different culture? It must have been quite shocking at first, was it? It was my choice, I mm -hmm. have to say. Uh, in that time in Venezuela, there were not musical studies at the university we had music only at the conservatories and my father wanted me to go to university. So I started searching uh, as we could search at that time. And I, I wonder how did we do that? You know, because I had to get, you know, you, you had, how did we get the information? My God, you know, you had to go to the embassy, to the embassies to find um, 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 addresses and write a letter and put a stamp, send yep. a letter. Please yep. send, send me the syllabus, you know, send me the, so you had to start your process, you know, one year and a half in advance, you know, always mm -hmm. to, but, but mail was working in Venezuela, mail, you know, email works, but uh, normal mail post doesn't work today. You know, that is a, we have forgotten what it, that was. It's, <laughs> yes. it's incredible, but it's like that. I know so, what you mean. Uh, <laughs> so, um, I, I did my research and I got accepted in Bristol University and I was very excited to get there. It was not easy, all the audition process I had to do from Venezuela. And um, when I got there, I had a live uh, audition talk with my professor um, and he was very British. My English was not very fluent because I had studied English in Venezuela. I had never lived outside of my country in an in a English-speaking place. And I have to confess that at the beginning, I could not understand at all what he was talking about. <laughs> in that sort of situation, it's amazing how quickly you can learn, though, isn't it? Yes. He started asking me questions about history of music. And of course, I could grasp the name or the topic, but well, I don't think that interview went very well. And then he sat me at the piano and he said, okay, could you, uh, he was um, asking me to side read um, a figured bass, vocal scores, um, orchestral scores. I have never done that in my life. I studied piano 
and I could play the piano. I mean, I had a lot of repertoire. I could side read at the piano, but side read a score, this was not the practice I had. So I, I think I failed that. <laughs> <laughs> so he sent me, it, it was, I think, I think it was late July, something like that. He sent me home and, and home already in England. And he said, okay, I trust you can do well but you have to study five hours of score reading every day. And this is why I wear glasses. <laughs> <laughs> you wore the eyes out. Yeah, and, and you have to listen to the BBC radio so that you understand our British accent. Mm. So I did that because I was decided to live in England and to do my studies there. And the first day I arrived in my class, it was very tutorial class because we were only 10 students mm -hmm. uh, in my group and the whole department were only 40 students it was really very tutorial and we had I think about 15 tutors so we had many individual classes and um, I remember that we were sitting in the common room drinking some tea and I was trying to understand the British jokes that was very hard <laughs> And uh, uh, I was asked by somebody, how do you feel here? Do you feel, and I say, well, I feel a little bit foreigner because I am the only non-English speaker here. And I say, right. and, and I, I think I, I said, I am the only foreigner here. And he looked at me and said, no, you are not. We have a Scottish and an Irish. <laughs> <laughs> yep, he must have been English. <laughs> yes. So I was in a very English school, right? But yes. I loved, I loved all my tutors. Uh, I didn't go back to Venezuela in those years. Uh, I communicated with my family through letters and phone calls from time to time. I was devoted to my studies, and then I came back to Venezuela uh, three years later because my grant had uh, finished. Mm -hmm. I was given many opportunities to work here as a very young musician with only a bachelor uh, degree. Mm -hmm. And I said, I must stay here because it's so beautiful what I can create, but I need to study more. So I took uh, a master's degree as an external student with Bristol for four more years. So I was in the summers, I will go there for two, two, two and a half months to mm -hmm. do my research, to study and all that. So in all, I was related like seven years to England and Bristol. It was the most uh, rewarding, beautiful and uh, great experience in my life. I, I am so happy I chose England as my home base for uh, my education. Obviously, Britain has a, a very strong and very ancient choral tradition. But at what point did you begin to focus on choral music? I had begun to focus on choral music even before going to England, because my first music teacher in life was Alberto Grau, my husband today. Your husband. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, when I was eight years old, he's 16 years older than me. When I was eight years old and my mother was looking for a piano teacher for me, 
she was told that he was a young um, pianist also and teacher and he could do a good teacher for young for children. So he, he was my teacher and he, he took me to the music school, but in the music school, he was conducting the choir, the children's choir and then the youth choir. So I always was doing all my music subjects like solfege, the history of music, harmony, counterpoint, piano, and always singing in the children's choir or in the um, youth choir. And when I was 17 years old, Alberto, um, he had already created the Scola Cantorum. I was not part of the Scola Cantorum because I was very young, but he created a, a class for choral conductors. That was the first attempt to do a class of choral conductors in Venezuela. He had been to um, um, an ACDA convention in the States and he had been to a Europa Cantat festival and he saw and he understood what was happening in other parts of the world, how to train conductors. And he was animated to do that. So we were a group of very young musicians who were asked if we would like to become choral conductors. So before going to England, I had already had some mm -hmm. uh, connection with choral music. Right. And while I was in Bristol, I sang in all the choirs because I loved singing in choirs and I studied singing as well. Although they did not have a degree on conducting, not even conducting orchestral conducting. Right, as a... As a, as they, a not, they, did, they have choral conducting as, as a subject, you know, as right. a, a part of the study. So my majors were in composition, musicology, and music education. One of the things that uh, is most remarkable about Venezuela is the, uh, the tremendous musical educational opportunities. For example, El Sistema, which is, is known worldwide. And you played a part in developing El Sistema, didn't you? Yes, I had. I worked um, for El Sistema for 35 years. Yeah. So that was um, um, when I came to Venezuela in 1976 from my um, degrees in England, El Sistema had, was, had one year, was one year old. Mm -hmm. And Abreu was a very enthusiastic and visionary man. And um, he was a very good friend of Alberto Grau, uh, who had been my teacher, and he was not my husband at the time. We didn't marry until the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, and he invited me, he asked me if I could uh, help him with the academic programs, since I was coming from university in the Music Conservatory of El Sistema. And then I was part also of all the um, teams that created uh, all the academic grounds in Venezuela to, to do, uh, uh, to create a, mu a music university and to create a postgrad in, in music in other universities. So I was doing the curriculum, the syllabuses and, and all of that. But at the same time, uh, Alberto Grau and myself together with the Scola Cantorum and the choral movement that we were fostering in Venezuela we were, we were the uh, choral brand, the choral 
arm of El Sistema for 35 years. Um, and that was a great experience, crazy work. We, that I cannot say how many hours. <laughs> if the day had more than 24 hours, we will be working more than 24 hours. And I, we, we did that, you know, uh, we, we, we created so many spaces. Abreu was um, an, uh, like, um, you know, a, a driving force that never stopped. He would call you at 10 o'clock in the evening, two o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning, you know, and we have to do this and we have to do that. There were no Saturday, Sundays, there were no holidays. You know, I had, I had two children. Sometimes I had to say, oh, Antonio, I need to feed my children. Wait. So, I will go to my, to the rehearsal sometimes with my two babies, you know, feeding them and carrying them around and all that. Those were very intense years. But um, when I look back, I can say uh, how fortunate I have been to, to be in the right place at the right moment right to do that. When you were developing these curricula for, uh, you know, for the different um, educational institutions and uh, El Sistema, etc., how did you approach putting the, uh, the musical choices together, shall we say? Because on the one hand, your uh, academic background in Britain presumably had an emphasis on choral works by English composers. But then when you go back to Venezuela, was there at that point a choral composing tradition that you could draw from? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, in Venezuela, um, um, El Sistema is not the beginning of our music history. Right. I, I, I can say that um, we had uh, not a large but a substantial school of composers du during the colonial times uh, mm -hmm. in the 18th century. Uh, and that tradition during the 19th century slowed down because of the civil wars. And that tradition was restarted at the beginning of the 20th century by Vicente Emilio Soho. Soho was a um, self-taught man, composer, very bright mind, um, very um, interested person, interesting person. And he created a, um, a school of composition. And many musicians came from the, around the country to study with this maestro. And he founded in 1929, the first mixed choir in Caracas mm. called Orfeón Lamas. And this school of composers were working mainly on choral works mm -hmm. for this choir. I mean, it was not a school of composers who were working for the future, no. They were setting poems in uh, Hispano-American poetry uh, Soho was really a great um, uh, instructor in how to, to set text to music. And all this music, all these choral songs and madrigals are beautifully worked in the sense that the poem flows in a natural way within the music. 
composers were driving ideas from different sources, from Renaissance style, from more uh, romantic style, from more um, impressionistic style. And he was a very open-minded man. So when I was here, there was already um, um, a wealth of repertoire that I knew and that I could draw from. And also in Venezuela, the tradition of not separating academic music from popular music is very important. So choirs love to sing popular music. Mm -hmm. And uh, I studied choral conducting in Venice, in Caracas, when I came back with Alberto Grau. And part of our work while we studied was to create choral arrangements of, prop, of uh, popular music and create our own compositions. So I could combine repertoire. So mm -hmm. I, could, I could give my choirs something that was familiar to them and I can bring also with me music that I had learned in my studies in England. So that was uh, very uh, enriching. And it's the way it is today. You know, I, I would say that we sing from the world a lot of repertoire here. Right. And when I go out with my choirs, I bring out the repertoire that we own. I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, that a lot of the music that developed in, in Venezuela and South America in general um, was, I don't want to say inspired, but it was driven by um, the church. It was sacred music. But then there would also be an indigenous musical tradition as well. When, well, when, did, when did those things come together? When did they blend? Well, uh, let's, let's, let's see it in a different way. Okay. The composers from the colonial times mm -hmm. were writing mainly for the church. You know, I am not going to tell you the story of the uh, uh, music from the colonial uh, Amer Latin America, because we know that there were different levels of colonies. You know, mm -hmm. in the vice royalties, you had the music of the cathedrals. That was high, high music that was, was written in Latin um, using the styles of the Renaissance, Baroque, etc. Or in vernacular languages like Nahuatl or, um, um, uh, uh, or other languages of the natives. Mm -hmm. Also, we have negrillas that were written in the sort of Spanish slangs that the Africans had learned and spoke. Then we have the music of the missions that is not the music from the cathedrals. And this music is in, uh, compositions like Sipoli that is, is simpler, let's say, in, um, in um, contrapuntal um, textures because mm -hmm. they were, uh, they had to be sung by the young, younger Indians, natives. And it was to be, that was music to teach music. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And then comes the music that was written in Venezuela and Brazil, that was the music of the cofrades. It's not neither cathedrals nor missions. The cofrades were uh, religious societies by the church mm -hmm. that were writing music for the church, but many of the uh, of the composers did not belong did not belong to the social uh, let's say elite of the time and could not be um, um, contracted by the church. So mm -hmm. there were this this uh, communication. That music was written for the church in Latin and Spanish. There's a lot of music written in Spanish mm -hmm. in the style of the sacred music. When Soho restarts already in the nine in the um, um, in the 20th century of course the whole 19th century had gone by and in venezuela the let's say the tradition of composing valses um, and um, um, paso dobles and popular instrumental music was very alive because mm -hmm. it was the trend of the time nationalism was everywhere right so compo the composers who were writing in soho's um, um, um group they were writing in spanish choral songs not sacred totally mm -hmm. profane poem right and some of them were already incorporating elements of the vernacular rhythms formulas way of singing, for instance, Antonio Esteves. He was incorporating music from the llanos, from the plains, the way of singing of the tenors, rhythmic complexities. And another composer called Angel Sauce, he started, and even Soho, they started collecting popular songs and arranging them for the choir. So they felt they were doing what Villalobos was doing in Brazil at the so. same time. I mean, Villalobos was doing that in the 1920s. Um, and um, um, Kodali and, and Bartok were known here too. They, they knew that they were doing that also in their countries. And they were using these melodies to teach in the schools. So there were other composers like Sergio Moreira who talk in the schools with um, popular songs from Venezuela, but beautifully arranged for one voice or two voices and piano. So they were already incorporating because as I tell you, there was never um, a separation. I think this music ha were there from the very beginning. So talk about the, the ensembles that you are involved with in Venezuela today, what, uh, which ensembles are they and, and what is it that you are preparing them to sing, to perform? Yeah, yeah, well, um, I am the artistic director of the Fundación Scola Cantorum. The Fundación Scola Cantorum is an organization, non-government organization, that this year is celebrating 55 years of work. And this is an organization where we have a program for children uh, in the favelas, a social program 
called Construir Cantando. We have a youth program and we have the Scola Cantorum, which is our mixed choir. The Scola Cantorum, the mixed choir, it's a, a non-professional choir, but you know, we, we audition. It's a choir where we train mainly our, the leaders and the singers to teach other generations. So we've been doing that for 55 years. So I am involved as an artistic director of the whole program and almost general manager. I do everything uh, with a very good team of people around me. And I conduct the Scola Cantorum. I create the programs, but I'm not conducting all the programs. Now I have other young conductors who are conducting too. And I am involved also with a choir in a private enterprise, which is a beer company called Polar, that is um, a very old company in the country. And I believe that choral music um, brings life um, together in workers and managers workers. And I've been involved with them for mm. 30, 30 years. It has been an example of what we achieved with these choirs and this company. And I am still involved with them. And I am very happy with what we have achieved. And this is what I do in Venezuela. I am not all the year here. I now I give them, you know, part of my time because I am also guest conducting, teaching, um, and also visiting my grandchildren. <laughs> you have grandchildren in Miami, is that, that true? I have two grandchildren in Bogota, three grandchildren in Miami, and one in Caracas. Right, so you have, to, you have to do the tour. Yes. <laughs> one of the things that, um, that you are known for is your close association with Osvaldo Golihoff. Yes. The uh, Argentinian uh, composer. How did you come to, to start working with Golihoff? Well, um, it happened through the Oregon Bach Festival. Mm. Uh, I was part of the Oregon Bach Festival since the early 90s because Roy Salzman, um, whom I knew through the International Federation for Choral Music, invited me to be part of Helmut Rilling's class in the early 90s. And um, I was part of that class and I went to Germany and I became, we founded the Bach Academy in Venezuela and all that. So in 1996, Helmut Rilling decided to commission to the, in the Oregon Bach Festival for composers from the Americas for cantatas. And it was called, the program was called Bach and the Americas. And Osvaldo Golihov was one of them. And um, uh, the cantata he was commissioned is Oceana. And then um, Roy Salzman and Helmut Rilling, who knew me well, asked me if the Scola Cantorum would be um, willing to perform, to premiere that piece. So we, said yes, and that our collaboration started there. The beginning was not very happy. It was a very <laughs> difficult time. <laughs> and we always love with Osvaldo when we, when we meet, because um, 
it was a time where composers were writing in paper by hand, you know, not yet all this finale and all that. Of course, no internet connection, no right. Zoom, no cell phones, fax. It was a little better than before, no stamps, fax. <laughs> and Osvaldo is a, it's a composer of action, you know, perhaps he doesn't write on the paper everything he thinks. Mm. And he prefers to be there to give you a sketch. Then you try the sketch and then we create together. But, you know, he was in Boston, I was in Caracas, and he sent <laughs> me all these faxes and I just look at this and say, okay, what shall I do? So I started, <laughs> I started rehearsing the best I could. And I, I, I said, okay, I didn't know him. I will send you a recording in a cassette, cassette and go to the well, movie. good old days. Yeah. <laughs> and then Osvaldo listens to my first uh, attempts to sing parts of the, his Oceana. And of course we were singing the right notes and the right rhythms, but we were not singing and the right words, but the style was totally my style because I didn't know what he wanted. I mean, I right. could not understand right. really. And he was angry, angry with me. <laughs> he said, I didn't understand anything of the things he wanted. And I said, well, I, I am not a witch. I mean, I cannot wish, I cannot uh, uh, imagine what you want. If you don't write it or you don't send me a, a letter or whatever, or you don't call me at the night. And then I got angrier with him. So we were quarreling over the phone. And mm -hmm. of course, he gave me more and more ideas and feedback. And I was uh, really, uh, let's say, challenged by this. And I really wanted to do it very well. So when we went to Oregon for this um, uh, festival, my choir was very well prepared. And I was extremely flexible and I told my choir be ready to change anything at any time you know we'll we are flexible we are we know how to improvise we can do things so and um, when we auditioned for Osvaldo his piece before going with the orchestra and all that and he asked for changes and all that he was so happy and so um, touched by our work that we became very good friends then. That was a success in Oregon in 1996. And at that time, Helmut Rilling was thinking uh, of the celebration of Bach 250th anniversary in year 2000. In 2000. And um, uh, he had the idea of commissioning the Four Passions, the Passion Project, to four composers from different uh, cultural backgrounds. So he commissioned Wolfgang Grimm, Sofia Gubaidulina from Russia and Tandun from China, USA. Mm -hmm. And he chose Osvaldo Golihov to do the, let's say, Latin American passion. Osvaldo is Jewish. He didn't even, even know the gospel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was, that was even <laughs> more complicated. And <laughs> Helmut, uh, we met with Helmut. Uh, and he said to Osvaldo, but you have to do this together with the Scuola Cantorum and with Maria, because I know you are good friends. And um, Osvaldo met with me and said, Maria, 
you know, shall we accept this? And I say, okay, you are the composer, I help you, but let's work better this time. And, um, <laughs> and uh, uh, well, he, I remember he started by asking me how, what was my experience of living the Holy Week and, uh, you know, these celebrations in Venezuela. So I said, I told him the stories of my childhood when we will go to a, um, a place near the beach. And um, here there are many processions, like in Spain, mm-hmm. you know, open processions of the saints. But instead of having a band and making it so formal, here is very popular, very rhythmic, you know, with drumming, uh, people even drinking rum and, you know, and people singing happily or singing painfully, you know, very dramatic. And I say, because it's a syncretism between the uh, Catholicism, Christianism, and all the African traditions. Mm -hmm. So they, you know, everything comes to one whole. And I think that gave Osvaldo a hint of what he wanted to do. And he did not create a Latin American fashion. He created more uh, Afro-Caribbean fashion. Mm -hmm. And he surrounded himself by wonderful musicians, um, uh, people he knew in Boston, in the Berkeley School of Music, um, Luciana Sousa, Brazilian singer. So we were a team of, I call them my circus, because it was a, a circus of wonderful people. Everybody had ideas and, <laughs> and, and well, it, it was, to tell you the details, uh, how did we get to the premiere of the Golijov Fashion in Stuttgart? It's a long story, but it was. But you got there. Beautiful, beautiful road. You've also worked with uh, John Adams yes. and uh, Peter Sellers on their world premiere, um, A Flowering Tree. Yes. It was a, an, an opera that debuted in 2006. What was that experience like? Oh, that was also a very beautiful experience, but totally, totally different. Mm-hmm. Um, I had known um, Peter Sellers before, through Osvaldo Golijov. I think he had come to some of our concerts of the Bach, uh, of the Golijov Passion. And I had seen some of his uh, mise en scène of the Bach cantatas, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, I love what he was doing. Sometimes I thought he was extreme, but you know, we live in the 21st century, so we need to to find new ways of making people understand all these texts. And John Adams, I admire very much as an opera composer. Yeah. And, um, and he, I like very much some of his um, productions. So when we were asked if they could come to Venezuela to listen to the Scuola Cantorum and to see us, I said, of course, you know, and come. And they came and we sang for them. John was asking me to sing for him all kinds of textures, you know, um, um, very rhythmically, a complex polyrhythmic um, um, Gregorian chant. 
and Peter wanted us to, to see how did we move and did we do that. So John is a totally different composer from Golihov. Mm -hmm. He's a very um, disciplined composer and he will send you exactly what he wants, you know, precisely what, what he wants. And his music is hard to learn. It's hard to rehearse and to learn by heart. Mm. And my, my choir is not an opera choir. So we had to work hours um, to learn well uh, John's music in the style he wanted. And also he, he stretched us, um, vocally speaking, to sing in different ways, like Osvaldo. So I always had to have um, care with my singers and explain and find with colleagues singers how to do this and that so that we will not hurt it, the voices and all that. And then when it came to the premiere, we went to Vienna. Uh, it was a time to work with Peter there. And I am, a, <clears throat> I am a person who thinks the body is very important for conductors. Mm. I, am a, uh, I exercise, I do yoga, I do Tai Chi, I, I like gymnastics and all that. And I told my choir, we need to be in shape physically. So right. we were in Caracas getting into shape because I said, Peter will not make any compromise to, uh, to ask you to be on stage in, you know, for three hours like this or like this. Or, uh, <laughs> so nobody can say, oh, my back is hurting. <laughs> no way. No. So when we went to, to, um, to Vienna, it was also Mozart's year. It was um, the New Crown Hope Festival, beautiful, uh, for celebrate that um, Mozart's anniversary. And we, were, we worked three weeks every day mm. with both of them. It's and, intense. And very intense. I will, um, the choir will start at, uh, 8.30 in the morning, exercising on stage with me, you know, stretching, exercising, doing movement, uh, warming up. And then 9.30, we will work with Peter on stage for two hours. And then we'll come John, and then in the afternoon, and then in the evening. And I think we managed also to do a very beautiful um, premiere of A Flowering Tree and later on recording. So I feel extremely privileged of these two projects that mm. for a, a Latin American choir uh, were huge challenges, responsibilities. I mean, somebody, some people ask me, did you ever think that you could fail? And then I said, yes, many times, but I didn't right. want to fail. So I told my singers, Okay, shall we do this? If we, if you tell me yes, it's like if we go to, like we go to a battle. You have to follow. You cannot say in the middle of the road, "Oh, I cannot comply with so many." You have this is absolutely dedication. So, right. Of course, there were people who could not do it. So, I said, "Okay, goodbye." But then I had a number of people. And I audition and re-audition and this and this and this and this and people followed until the end and that was beautiful. What do you feel when you're on the podium 
in front of, of a choir to, to conduct them. How does that make you feel? What is it that you enjoy about it? What is it that you get out of that experience? I love the human communication through gesture and music. It's, it's a feeling of, um, of energy, of life together through beauty. Perhaps I cannot explain it with words, but when, when I start rehearsing a choir uh, and we start um, singing together, I see that sometimes uh, I, my soul gets transformed. Mm. I am really in another sphere of life. And it's like a religious experience. It's a very strong I, spiritual dimension. It's a very strong spiritual dimension. And as the music, you know, as the work uh, is um, cooking and becomes more and more um, fluid and music is going better and we are com communicating better in a way that you don't have to say too many words, right. then the experience is, uh, is more brilliant. You know, it's the light becomes even more intense. It's so beautiful. And if we can communicate that to the audience, that's the final goal. Yes. Because ultimately, as you said, it's, it's, it's all about communication, isn't it? Yeah. It's all about communication. Look, Maria, I hope that we will get to see you back in Houston with the Houston Chamber Choir at some stage in the not-too-distant future. And thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Maria Guinon, thank you very much. Thank you very much, and John. I enjoy very much this conversation, and I look forward to work with the Houston Chamber Choir and to see all my dear, dear friends in Houston very soon. Come back soon, thank you. Thank you. Thank you to all who support the Houston Chamber Choir, our season underwriter, Silvercrest Asset Management Group, our patrons, donors, and subscribers. We appreciate all you do to help keep the work of the Houston Chamber Choir possible. I'm Sinjin Flynn, and this is Behind the Music. Join us again next time. The Houston Chamber Choirs with One Accord is your one-stop shop for choral joy. If you enjoyed this podcast, help us to continue our mission to grow the esteem and appreciation of choral music by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to our content. As a 501c3 nonprofit, support from listeners like you allows us to continue to create new and exciting programming. For more information about us and how you can support our work, please visit HoustonChamberChoir.org give.